0: Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome and thank you very much for joining me tonight in this e- Sunday evening in Vancouver. And I'm also very grateful to Jörg Matthias Detterman, who woke up super, super early in Qatar so that he could Skype me about his new book. We just finished talking about that book, um, and it's fabulous and it's fascinating. This is Researching Biology and Evolution in the Gulf States, Networks of Science in the Middle East. It came out with I.B. Taurus in 2015. Now what Matthias does is he brings together um, a really careful study of the modern Middle East with a really careful study of the history and contemporary practice of the biological sciences. And the result takes us into herbaria, um, wildlife parks, zoological gardens. It takes us into field research, Um, people engaging in that research from all over and coming together in the Gulf states in order to show us the ways that research was possible um, and really flourished and generated really, really interesting contributions to the global biological sciences, despite um, facing some challenges that had to do with social and political constraints on, for example, how and to what extent um, as a scientist, you were supposed to talk about evolution, right? Um, how and to what extent you were supposed to engage ideas about human origins and transformations, et cetera, et cetera. So, what Matthias shows is that um, precisely the structures that come from the particular funding situation in the Gulf states, the particular research networks that were enabled um, by the Gulf states, these actually facilitated some really, really interesting kinds of work. Um, that help us understand the way that science in the Gulf states really contributed very, very meaningfully and continues to do so um, to global and transnational biosciences. By the end of the book, um, just as a shout-out for listeners who are particularly interested in histories of transnational um, collaboration that involve East Asia, um, there's some really interesting stuff happening that you'll hear about toward the end of our conversation um, that looks at the kind of uh, collaborations between science in the Gulf States and China, for example, um, in the field of genomics specifically. And by the end of the conversation, you'll hear Matthias talking a little bit about um, collaborative efforts, collaborative efforts to sequence the camel genome. So stay tuned for that. Enjoy um, the conversation. Thank you so much for your support and thank you so much for listening. Um, and I hope you. Have a good time listening as much as I had a good time talking with Matthias about it. Enjoy. I'm here tonight to talk with Jurg Matthias Dittermann about his new book, Researching Bi- Biology and Evolution in the Gulf States. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Matthias. Thank you so much for navigating this Vancouver to Qatar time difference um, and also for writing a really, really fascinating book. I'm really looking forward to this, and I'm grateful for your time.
1: Thank you so much, Carla. Um,
0: Of course. So, Matthias, let's start as is um, kind of traditional for the program by talking a little bit about what brought you to the field, and specifically, how did you come to work on the history of science and history of life sciences in particular?
1: Um, Yeah, like many people in the field of history of science, i as a teenager didn't know that there was such a field as history of science that one could become a professional historian of science i was interested in both history and in the natural sciences above um because of my family background my um, my mother is a a history teacher uh, herself and my Uh, I've got other relatives who are um, in the natural uh, sciences, who are um, active in biology or uh, astronomy. And I had kind of an interest in both. Um, When it came to finishing high school and uh, choosing university majors, uh, I had thought about doing either history or biology. I then settled on history In addition to Arabic studies. uh, And at that time, I didn't know that one could actually do both history of biology as uh, uh, history and biology as the field of history of science uh, allows one. Um, So I studied history and Arabic studies at the University of of Vienna, uh, took courses with a few historians of science like Mitchell Ash, like Albert Müller, and also. I took courses um, with scholars of Islamic studies who are interested in um, evolution, creationism in Islam, um, scholars like Rudiger Galoika uh, And um, uh, so I got introduced to the field of history of uh, science in my undergraduate studies. My first book was not on the history of science, however. Um, Although it was broadly on the history of scholarship and intellectual history, I wrote a book on um, historiography in Saudi Arabia, which was based on a doctoral dissertation. As part of that um, doctoral fieldwork in Saudi Arabia, I also became interested in Arabian environments, uh, human, animal, plant life uh, in Arabia, and um, uh, thought uh, that writing a book about biology in Arabia, in the Gulf States, uh, would be a way of, uh, for me to get into um, the study of Arabian environments.
0: Great. Um, So that also um, tells us a little bit about how you came to this particular project. And just for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to take a look at the book, I'll just kind of very briefly explain the nature of that project. So the book we're talking about today looks very carefully at the history of modern biology in the Arab Gulf monarchies. And it specifically focuses on the publication of issues related to and concepts related to evolution in the publications of and in works by biologists who worked in Arabia. And some of them are actually biologists who are based in other countries and other areas. So let's actually, since we, you know, we've already um, been talking a little about it, let's get right into the book. Now, one of the really wonderful things about the book is that each chapter begins by opening out into a particular moment, right? or a particular case, a particular issue of interest that then leads us into the focus of the chapter and the focus of that part of the book. So the first chapter opens out um, into a fatwa against Pokemon. Right. So um, you bring us into the issue of Pokemon as um, a very controversial figure, and this was not just um, in the context you're working on. Um, this is a, a in a broader context. The game apparently promoted an idea of Darwin's theory of evolution. Um, so as a way of bringing us into the story, the way you do um, in the book, can you say a little bit about that moment and um, the significance of that moment for the work that this part of the book is doing?
1: Um, Right, um, so in the early 2000s um, uh, the, um, um, uh, the sale of Pokemon products um, was banned in a number of Gulf states and this was part of global attempts to control the um, Pokemon craze um, uh, In the um, Gulf states, the ban of Pokemon products also had an uh, had an evolutionary dimension um, uh, the, the idea is that uh, the game would promote ideas of evolution uh, in Arab and Muslim societies because uh, in the game you would have weaker pocket monsters evolving into uh, stronger ones mm-hmm. uh, i use this episode uh, to uh, to introduce the sensitive and sometimes controversial status of the theory of evolution in um, modern Muslim societies. Um, uh, There have been a variety of readings of Darwin's theory um, ever since On the Origin of Species was published. uh, And on your channel, you had Marwa Shakri speaking about her book, um, uh, Reading Darwin in Arabic, um, uh, where um she talks just about the variety of perspectives um that Arabs took on evolution. However, especially since um the nineteen fifties, that's when Madwat Shakri's work stopped, um evolution has become very associated with materialism, with atheism um, in um wide sections of Muslim societies uh, and uh, and the notion especially of human evolution is seen as uh, contradicting uh, the, the Quran. And so the theory of evolution is excluded uh, from the teaching of um, of many public schools, especially at the K-12 level uh, in the Gulf states and elsewhere in, um, uh, in the Arab and, um, uh, and Muslim world. And so um, yeah, this, the Pokemon episode um, basically is a point for me to highlight uh, that sensitive, touchy status of uh, the theory.
0: Right. Now, one of the things that the book does really well and also very sensitively, to use a term um, that you've just used, is it shows that... Um, some of the ways that we might take for granted um, how to understand um, Arab science, how to understand the place and the kinds of uh, prohibitions that such an attitude toward evolution or other kinds of um, uh, ideas might place on research, Um, these assumptions are actually... Not right, right? And so one of the things the book does really well is, is speak back against some um, major historiographical trends and some things that we might take for granted to show us um, the real possibilities of working with some of these ideas uh, that you show in the work of the scientists um, in this area in this period. So the scientists that you're, you're looking at were able to employ evolution in the political, religious, Social and natural environments of the Gulf. And one of the questions animating the book is okay, what enabled them to do that? You know, given the fact that it's such a um, relatively sensitive topic, how did this play out for biologists who were actually engaging these issues? And at least part of the answer, as we'll see over the course of the book and over the course of our conversation, lies in the importance of networks. These are networks between scientists, princes, other people, corporations, but also plants, animals, and other non-human actors. So one of the important historiographical contributions that the book makes um, really is about situating this within broader studies of sciences in the Arabic world. Now, the book seeks, as you describe right at the beginning, to avoid telling a story in terms of common tropes of decline and stagnation. And I appreciate this coming from the history of um, science in China, right, where we also see a lot of work that takes the shape of stories about decline and stagnation. But the book also seeks to, um, in your words in the book, go beyond the wholesale and and often negative views of scientific production in the contemporary Arab world. It also takes a qualitative rather than quantitative approach. To the topic so for listeners who might not be familiar with the work that this is um, speaking to and speaking kind of out against can you talk a little bit about these major historiographical um, ways that the book is pushing back against some common tropes in the history of Arabic sciences
1: um, with great great pleasure um, when many people think of science and the Arab world um, they would rather think of medieval or pre-modern Arabic and Islamic science. Um, they would think of the great contributions by Arab and Muslim scholars uh, during the Middle Ages in places like the House of Wisdom um, in Baghdad. Um, and unfortunately, um, widespread views of the Muslim, Arab and Muslim world today, they focus on um, terrorism on violence um, on uh, like they almost give, give the idea that um, uh, the Arab world was a thousand years ago in some kind of golden age and um, uh, Europe was living in the dark ages mm-hmm. and now um, things have reversed. So that the West is leading the world. And now it seems that the Arab world has descended um, into some kind of dark age. Um, that would be an, perhaps an exaggerated view, but um, something like this exists in popular views and also has affected the wider literature. Um, so um, many scholars have seen the, um, the rise of the West, rise of modern science as happening at the same time as a decline Of the the rest um, as a decline of Arabic and Islamic science, as part of a general decline, stagnation of the Arab and Islamic world. Now, these tropes have been criticized by numerous historians of science, by numerous Middle East historians, world historians. However, they still shape scholarship. However, to the extent that we, while we have a lot of research on pre-modern and medieval Arabic and Islamic science, we have very little um, research on um, modern um, science in the Arab world. Um, the, um, the research that does exist, books like Madhava al-Shakri's Reading Darwin in Arabic, for instance, uh, but they also focus less on the practice by laboratory or field science, uh, and says, and more on the reception, adoption, adaptation of t- scientific theories that come from the outside um, to the Arab world. There are very few studies that look at um, scientific activity that's happening in modern Arab universities, even though modern Arab universities have existed for um, more than 100 years. Um, so, There is really a lack of studies on the practice by scientists in the modern and contemporary Arab world. And this lack I would like to fill with my research.
0: Great. So it doesn't, um, the book doesn't just fill a lack. It also really, I think, usefully transforms how we think about, Um, the Arab world and also the Gulf monarchy specifically with respect to a larger global frame and a larger global context and this starts right, um, really it starts right at the beginning but we really start getting into the details in chapter 2 so chapter 2 looks very closely at botanical research and it specifically focuses on two major products of research by botanists the establishment of herbaria um, and we'll talk a little bit about that and also surveys of array be in vegetation. Now the chapter argues that botanists contributed to the creation of plant kingdoms, it's plural, right, plant kingdoms in two ways, both literally by writing floras of the gulf region, and also metaphorically by enabling, um, and these are in your words here, by enabling gulf monarchies to control the plants within their territories and to green the deserts. Okay, so listeners might be a little bit more familiar with the kind of um, activity that involves uh, establishing herbaria, right, and writing floras, but they might not be so familiar with the second, this kind of metaphorical um, creation of plant kingdom. So would you mind talking a little bit about this, the sort of the ways that the work by botanists enabled um, monarchies to control the plants within their territories and to green the deserts?
1: Right. Um. So many scholars um, uh, and others have described the Gulf monarchies as desert kingdoms, as oil monarchies, um, as places that um, are wastelands, basically, that are um, very arid, um, where we have desert, sand dunes, camels, Bedouin, and sort of oil wells. Um, uh, however, um, Gulf governments and Gulf, uh, and biologists in the Gulf have, have tried to change these kingdoms sort of metaphorically into um, green kingdoms, plant kingdoms. Um, uh, they've been um, uh, trying to diversify their economies, also um, uh, um, decrease the reliance on the export of oil and gas um, and develop agriculture. Um, and Gulf princes, as well as uh, ministers and um, uh, and botanists, have been interested in uh, harnessing the other sort of natural resources of of the Gulf states, other than oil and gas. So not the uh, not the remnants of past life on Earth. So not of uh, oil and gas, uh, but Arabia's living nature of uh, which has increasingly been seen as the only renewable and only sustainable uh, natural resources of of Arabia. Um, so um, uh, the Gulf states, uh, governments as well as scientists, have been involved in, um, in transforming the Gulf states into sort of green spaces rather than desert spaces in spaces with Agricultural production um, uh, with uh, um, in space, uh, in transforming the Gulf states into states that control and exploit um, and make use of um, uh, their living nature as much as they can.
0: Now, one of the arguments that the uh, chapter makes along these lines is that the botanists that you studied here are using notions of evolution of species specifically to serve national development. The idea of development becomes really important. Um, As you put it here, these botanists were agents who warned against the destructive efforts of rapid development on plant life. So can you talk a little bit about the importance of ideas of development um, for what's happening with these botanists?
1: Right. So even though evolution um, has been a sensitive and touchy subject um, among sections of Gulf society, development itself has not. Although there are strong historical links between um, the concepts of evolution uh, and development, um, both um, um, sometimes appear as um, uh, as sort of notions of. Progress as notions of betterment, as notions of uh, improvement, of re- reaching a higher state. Like many um, third world countries, the Gulf states have been developmentalists. Um, uh, they have, um, uh, um, uh, they have ch- tried to make development as one of their main goals, also, one of their main sources of legitimacy in addition to a, a sort of more traditional um, Islamic or tribal legitimacies. Um, and the Gulf governments, they have uh, um, supported comprehensive developments, so development not just of the oil and gas sector, but really of the entire society, um, uh, uh, including like education, uh, the economy, and also uh, agriculture. And botanists um, have been recruited to serve those developmental aims of of the state. So uh, botanists um, were sent to all quarters of uh, the Arabian Peninsula to explore the natural resources so that those resources could could serve um, the development of um, these third world states. at the same time, however, um, uh, these um, botanists um, uh, were uh, witnessing um, uh, some of the destructive effects of rapid urbanisation, rapid um, development, industrial development on plant life. Uh, and they were warned against the dangers of uh, they were they warned against the dangers of too rapid, too destructive development. So uh, my point is that we should not see these. Botanists, um, these agricultural scientists, these biologists in the Gulf states, as mere agents of developmentalist governments, um, but as agents in their own right who uh, could also warn um, against some of the effects of the projects um, in whose contexts they are employed.
0: So the chapter also emphasizes the importance of the transnational character of biological research in the Gulf, and the chapter takes us into examples of a British um Uh, British people working in the Gulf, uh, British scientists working there. Um, You talk about the significance of Kew Royal Botanic Gardens um, for what's Mm -hmm. going on here, especially as a center for calculation, and then bring us into the ways that the transnational character of research in the Gulf actually changes a bit after decolonization and British withdrawal from the Gulf in the 70s when new kinds of research collaborations open up, specifically um, with German scientists. And you talk a little bit about about that. Um, for listeners, can you tell us a little bit about what you um, think is most important for us to understand about the transnational character of research um, in this period and in this context?
1: Right. Uh, so um, common views of Saudi Arabia in particular see the kingdom as a very closed society, um, as a as an sometimes intolerant um, society sometimes extreme society even. Um, however, Saudi Arabia, alongside the other Gulf states, have been heavily globalized. Um, uh, they've been of crucial importance to the global energy markets um, uh, since at least the 1970s, um, uh, if not earlier. Um, uh, they've been also very tolerant and very open um, to um uh, to scientists, to researchers from all around the world, and, um, I mean, specifically to uh, the, uh, to scientists from Britain as a former power in the region, um, but after formal British withdrawal from India and from the Gulf region, um, the Gulf states have also been open to scientists from any other countries. Um, the main point that I would like to make is that um, the kind of... Um, science that we see in modern arabia modern the modern gulf states is not essentially islamic or essentially arab um but rather the research that takes place in modern and contemporary arabia is transnational is part of global science um part of world science um, and part of the networks that span the globe um uh, that go to centers of calculation I'm um, like you, um,
0: mm-hmm. Ed back. Great, thank you so much. So, after a really fascinating account of botany and plants, the book moves us into a chapter on animals, and it takes us into a chapter that looks specifically at the networks that support research and also that support conservation. Um, in a few different cases, and you talk here about the oryx, um, and we'll talk about gazelles and baboons as well. So the uh, chapter opens with a 1979 rescue operation to try to save animals stuck on a plane that had arrived in one of Rome's airports from South Africa. Now, some of these, uh, it's a long story, it's a fascinating story, Um, but some of these animals were eventually moved to a wildlife park in Bahrain. Now, this opens out into a really interesting story about research and also conservation in the Gulf states. Um, And you talk in particular about the case of the oryx. Um, Now, the oryx is fascinating in this context, and I wonder if you wouldn't mind um, talking a little bit about what you think, again, is most interesting and important about the case of the oryx um, in this context in terms of the work that this chapter is doing.
1: (laughs) Sure. Um, So while many plants um, were seen as of economic value, as of value for the agricultural development and wider sort of comprehensive development of the uh, Gulf states, um, some animals were of less economic value, but they had very high symbolic value. Uh, And one of those animals is the oryx, uh, the oryx. Oryx is, for instance, on the, um, uh, on the, uh, sorry, is for instance on the logo of Qatar Airways. It's on the logo of various um, newspapers um, in the region. On, um, on the currency, um, parents give the Arabic name of the oryx, Maha or Al Maha, um, to, uh, to girls. a um, so. The Oryx has really an important value as a symbol of the nation. And so you had less ministries of agriculture being concerned with the Oryx, but you often had princes and governments themselves being interested in those rare animals, animals that were threatened with extinction. But this interest of princes is not just a modern phenomenon. rulers in the Gulf state, uh, rulers in the Middle East um, they've been having zoos and keeping animals for thousands of years Uh, uh, rulers in the Middle East uh, have been engaging in animal economies of gift exchange um, where um, they would exchange rare animals as gifts with um, sort of um, foreign kings Um, and Contemporary Gulf princes have continued some of those patterns. However, they've also employed um, modern conservationists to save the oryx and other rare species. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, one of the really interesting things that the chapter is doing is bringing us into the importance of connections and networks. And this is really a theme that I think, um, as has probably become clear already at the very beginning of our conversation, is very, very important for the book. Now, um, this chapter in particular emphasizes the connections between princes, um, as you just mentioned, European business, and scientists. And you talk a lot in here about the ways that Saudi princes are interested in conservation and are sort of patronizing um, conservation efforts. Now, one of the really interesting things that's happening here um, is that you're showing that at the same time, the scientists who are working on and with these animals are both serving princely agendas and also are able to do research on sensitive topics like evolution. How did they manage this? And, and um, can you talk about how that actually worked in this case?
1: Um, so, um, princes were very interested in um, saving species like the um, oryx, but also species like the Hobada bustard, um, which is the main prey in falconry. Um, um, in order um, to save, for instance, falconry, um, as a traditional sports princely pastime and part of uh, sort of the Gulf state's national identities and the Gulf uh, and these princes they were willing to invest far more resources in the re- in researching those animals than Western funding agencies uh, would. Um, so they gave um, uh, the scientists a lot of research a lot of resources, a lot of freedom. Uh, but to pursue their uh, 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 their research, with the ultimate goal of reintroducing uh, and conserving um, animals like the oryx or the Arabian um, uh, uh, or the Habbada bustards to Arabian environments. Uh, but these the princes themselves they were often not scientists. They had little. Um, uh, they had little. Interest, perhaps, in the uh, in the details of the scientific work that um, was going on. However, the scientists themselves uh, were able to convince the princes that it was important for the introduction of a specific species, um, not just to, um, not just to breed and reintroduce some of those animals, but to study them in their environment, to see how these animals can survive, to see how these animals can. Adapt to changing Arabian environments. Um, uh, and ultimately, these scientists were able uh, to gain the patronage and the, product, and the protection of senior players in the Gulf governments uh, for research that focused on the breeding um, of animals but also reached um, areas such as. Um, evolutionary adaptations of animals to their environment.
0: Great. And just to kind of mark for listeners, this chapter, even though we won't have time Um, To really talk about it in any detail, the chapter also pays very careful attention to the involvement of local tribes um, in some of the research, the production of research and the conservation efforts, especially um, with respect to the oryx. And so you talk a lot about that um, in chapter three, and it's a really fascinating part of the story. So as we move to chapter four, we move into a chapter that focuses on ornithology and the conservation of birds. And it really takes on um, the case study of these Hobara bustards that you um, were just talking about. Again, the main prey in falconry and a really, really important um, object, a really important animal and entity that was at the center of conservation efforts in the Gulf. So this chapter in particular, and, and we'll talk more about the bustards, I'm sure, over the course of um, talking about this chapter, but the, ch- the chapter also introduces a concept that's very important um, for the work that you're doing here, and this is the idea of islands of efficiency the chapter is interested in the ways that networks created these islands of efficiency. Um, and you use an example of the national wildlife research center as one of these spaces. So for listeners um, who haven't again, had a chance to read the book yet, can you explain this notion of islands of efficiency? What's important for us to understand about that? And um, how is the national wildlife research center um, an example of this?
1: Um. So um, many people view state institutions, public institutions, as inherently less efficient um, than private organizations. The idea is that um, basically a a private, for instance, company that is under market pressure would be more profitable, more efficient um, than a public sector organization, a state owned company. Um, that um, does, that gets its money from the government and does, does not have to worry about competitiveness um, and market. Uh, and many analysts have seen the Gulf bureaucracies, Gulf state-owned organizations, as particularly inefficient. Um, uh, the idea is that abundance of oil can just pay for the maintenance and continuation and growth of inefficient um, organizations. And it's perhaps true that in the Gulf, just like elsewhere in other countries of the world, there are inefficient um, public sector organizations, whether it's companies or or whether it's sort of research centers. However, um, uh, the agency that princes and senior players in the government had also allowed them to create... um, highly efficient organizations within the public sector. Um, so we see that in the fields of companies. Um, so um, we, we see, for instance, airlines such as Emirates and Qatar Airways and um, Etihad that have outcompeted competed privately owned Western airlines um, on many fields, uh, on many routes. Um, you have... Um, similar islands of efficiency also in the scientific field. Um, so um, institutions that, um, that are perhaps not profitable, but, but that have a lot of output in terms of publications um, and other forms of dissemination. Um, so these islands of efficiency have in common the patronage and protection and support uh, by a key member in the government. So somebody like Saud al-Faisal, the former Saudi foreign minister, who had a special interest in Hobada bastards and who um, supported and bankrolled um, the National Wildlife Research Center. Mm-hmm. Um, so these institutions that were under directly under a senior prince, um, they could operate without much bureaucracy. Um, they could gain funding from their patron Easily, more easily than, let's say, re- scientists at Western institutions applying for grants from the National Science Foundation of, of, of America, for instance, could get. But um, uh, the sign uh, the princes would give um, uh, these islands of efficiency, like the National Wildlife Research Center in Saudi Arabia, clear mandates to produce hovada bastards, for instance. Uh, but they would also give these islands of efficiency a lot of managerial autonomy. They would give them the ability to hire um, competitively, hire um, highly motivated and highly paid foreign experts as well as um, native experts. Uh, And these um, princes would also endow these islands of efficiency um, with a lot of academic freedom.
0: Great. So the chapter also, um, and I'll just mention this briefly, even though we won't have time to talk about it substant- substantively, the chapter also pays some attention to the role of women researchers. Um, and some uh, specifically are, are talked about here, which is a really interesting, I think, part of the story. Um, and the chapter talks a lot about the kinds of freedoms um, that women researchers enjoyed in these contexts. So it's a really Um, uh, really, I think, interesting moment for listeners who are particularly engaged by issues of gender um, in these contexts. But one of the other really important issues that comes up in this context and in this chapter is the issue of climate change and its impact on these animals. Can you talk a little bit about the significance of um, the notion of climate change to the work that these researchers were doing? Mm
1: -hmm. Um, so, um, researchers at the National Wildlife Research Center, um, uh, we're studying how animals like the Hobada bustard, like the oryx, like gazelle, could survive um, in these extreme environments of, um, especially extreme heat and solar radiation um, of, of Saudi Arabia um, and the other Gulf states. Um, uh, this was. Research that was ultimately intended to help um, uh, with the reintroduction of those species to um, Arabian environments, um, and um, in the course of this research, um, uh, the scientists also warned against um, uh, the effects of climate change, um, arguing that uh, some of um, uh, some of the organisms. Um, uh, they have adapted um, to extremely high temperatures, like um, 45, 50 um, degrees Celsius. However, um, they are probably already at their upper lethal limits. Um, so, any further increase in um, uh, uh, in temperatures with global climate change could be detrimental uh, to life, uh, uh, to animal life. Um, in the Arabian Peninsula.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, uh, they uh, Some of these scientists implicitly, even though they were funded by Gulf princes, they were also implicitly criticizing um, some of the unsustainable um, um, practices of um, g- Gulf states, which, um, yeah, um, through their oil and gas industries, um are some of the, uh, the biggest emitters of um, sort of um, carbon dioxide per capita in the world. Great.
0: So as we move to the next chapter, and there's a whole lot more um, goodness going on in chapter four, right, that we won't have time to talk about. But as we move to the next chapter, we move to a chapter called Missing Links. This is a chapter that looks at paleontology in the Gulf monarchies, especially with regard to primates. Now, it considers, um, in your words here, the connections and disconnections that made the discovery and presentation of fossils in the Gulf monarchies possible. And it looks especially at connections between paleontologists, museums, governments, and oil companies from the 1970s onward. Now, transnational and transregional networks were especially important um, to the story in the case of paleontology. So can you talk a little bit about what you think um, is most important for us to understand about the transnational and transregional nature of these networks with regard to paleontology and the kind of work that those transregional and transnational networks made possible? Mm
1: -hmm. So, paleontology and paleoanthropology in particular are perhaps the most transnational fields of research ever in the Gulf, um, partly due to the absence of university departments of, of, of paleoanthropology and um, um, uh, and, uh, and paleontology um, at Gulf universities, unlike the presence of general departments of zoology, botany, microbiology and other fields of uh, the life sciences at Gulf universities. Uh, So many of the paleontologists um, uh, that have done work, especially on primates, uh, have been um, from outside the Gulf, visiting the Gulf, um, or um, coming for excavation seasons uh, to the Gulf. Um, Some of those scientists have been involved employed by all companies who have used paleontology to date fossils, which helped with the dating of rocks, um, um, which supported um, the exploration for natural resources, um, oil and gas in particular. And some paleontologists have come from um, Western museums and universities, although some of these scientists are are themselves Arabs. Um, um, we we can see these transnational connections are uh, fueled by fossil economies, um, uh, by um, larger macro fossil-based world economy, um, uh, an economy that um, brings in huge amounts of oil dollars to the Gulf states, which allows the Gulf states to spend this money on uh, on science, in particular. However, we also see fossil microeconomies, so kind of economies, small-scale economies involving fossils, um, where all companies, Gulf-based universities and universities and mu- museums in the West, exchange fossils, expertise, and also environmental credentials. So scientists, for instance, um, especially in the life science, um, they could... Um, help with public relations of an oil company, an oil company that perhaps has to defend itself um, sort of against accusations of polluting the environment. Um, and life scientists um, could show, by being employed by oil companies, um, uh, how um, uh, the oil companies are supporting environmental research and are thus good citizens.
0: Great. Now, the chapter also talks a lot about um, particular debates that are raised by fossils in this context. One of the debates concerns the Natural History Museum and the discovery of hominid fossils in Saudi Arabia. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of that case and that debate here?
1: Um, yeah, um, so uh, it's not surprising that oh, hominids have been found um, in the Arabian Peninsula, uh, because um, uh, that area has been a transition area um, between Africa, Europe, and Asia. And as early humans um, migrated outside of Africa, one of the first places um, where they moved to would have been the Arabian Peninsula. Um, so fossils of human ancestors were found, among others, uh, places um, near Mecca itself. Um, um Contributing to debates over evolution, um, yeah, um, on sort of Gulf news websites, um, where some people would celebrate um, uh, these discoveries, some people would even combine these um, uh, uh, these fossil discoveries with religion, um, basically arguing that it is not surprise, no surprise that. Um, one of the earliest human ancestors was found near Mecca uh, as a holy place where um, uh, the house of Abraham uh, um, uh, was built um, according to Muslim beliefs. Uh, However, um, other opponents of evolution um, have also um, basically um, uh, argued against evolution and for the... uh, Creation story in the Quran of arguing that God created Adam and that scientists should stop looking for fossil hominids.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, you talk um, in this chapter about the politicization of paleontology in that context in particular, and you introduce um, the work of and, and the kind of writings and, and um, opinions of a Turkish creationist named Harun Yahya in the 2000s. What was significant mm-hmm. about um, him and, and what he was doing in terms of the politicization of paleontology?
1: Um, so um, Harun Yahya um, has been a Turkish creationist active since the 1980s, um, often recycling the tropes of Christian creationists are um, creating books that put fossils um, next to skeletons of modern animals um, that look very similar and argue basically that um, the theory of evolution is false, um, that there are no transitional life forms between one species or another. Um, and um, Harun Yahya exported um, uh, his books to the West, uh, but uh, since the 2000s also uh, into the Gulf States with books appearing, for instance, at the um, Sharjah World Book Fair and with uh, some of Harun Yahya's collaborators giving um, lectures at universities in the United Arab Emirates, uh, for instance. Uh, This then also caused Debate with biologists at coming um, universities in the um, United Arab Emirates who defended the theory of evolution of, uh, against the creation creationism of Harun Yahya. <laughs>
0: Great. So as we come to the sixth chapter, um, we come to a chapter that simultaneously kind of sums up where we've been and also points us forward and talks a little bit about um, how we might take the findings of the book um, and sort of think about prospects for future transnationalisms and and future um, possibilities for research and sciences in the Gulf States. So, this chapter argues, um, in particular, is one of its contributions, that rentier states were not an obstacle to research and innovation, right? And this is something that um, is a point that's made throughout the book. So, these are states that are reliant on oil rents, right? Um, so, states of the world. Can you talk um, a little bit about that? Um, What's important for us to understand about these particular states reliant on oil rents um, not being an obstacle to research and innovation? What are some of the most important ways that that's true?
1: Um, So um, many people have argued that um, the oil, that reliance on wealth, from the possession of natural resources, um, like oil and gas, um, rents, um, ultimately would create a royalty mentality. Um, the idea is that basically if you uh, have a source of income that is independent from hard physical work like rents, um, then you don't really need to hard work. Uh, need to work very hard. You don't need to be entrepreneurial. You don't need to be innovate. You don't need to take risks. Um, and ultimately, you will not do good science. Obviously, what um, some of these analysts are perhaps not conscious of is that you've got many highly innovative, for instance, British gentleman scientists in the nineteenth century who were essentially. Um, relying on the income from investments um, from rents from the on the income based on land but they were still able to innovate and um, and even that personal wealth gave them some form of independence um, so I would argue that um, that indeed the oil wealth is not an obstacle that uh, to innovation that the kind of structures of distribution of of oil rents um, make, do not make people lazy. Um, rather, we have a specific sociology of science of, and sociology of the, of the state emerging in these Gulf countries where we do have some inefficient, um, highly bureaucrat- bureaucratic entities, entities where employment is based on nepotism um, um, rather than uh, on merit. However, in parallel, we have these scientific islands of efficiency um, agencies that are less bureaucratic um, uh, than um, some uh, than many universities and funding agencies in the west institutions um, uh, that have a key patron um, uh, like a prince who gives these institutions uh, mandate freedom and more resources um, uh, than similar institutions um, outside of the Gulf would have. And through these scientific islands of efficiencies, the Gulf states have been very competitive in um, uh, many fields of science, especially in the life and environmental sciences.
0: Great. And another um, point that's related to that, that this last chapter emphasizes again, is that um, these scientists in the Gulf states that you've introduced us to were able to conduct research that challenged academic and religious views as well. And so some of these um, factors that you just described are also producing freedoms that readers might not otherwise be aware, um, you know, were there and existed. And you've you've spent the whole book up to now um, showing us some of the really wonderful research that came out of grabbing onto and, um, you know, uh, making the most of exploiting those freedoms. Now, the final chapter also considers the implications of the book's findings, as I just mentioned, for science in the contemporary Arab world. Now, you um, remind us here of something that we talked about very early on, and that is the need to appreciate the importance of contributions of the Arab world to transnational science. So this is something again that um, the entire book uh, speaks to. But did you want to mention any particularly important factors for you um, that really showcase or that um, highlight the importance of the Arab world to um, transnational science as a way to kind of you know kind of bring the um, bring the book around to a close?
1: Yeah. Uh, so. Um, uh, so basically, my main point. Would be a positive point about the contribution of the Arab world um, to modern and uh, uh, to modern um, global science, world science, and a contribution that the Gulf states have made with money, um, for instance, by um, funding um, global research um, uh, through their own money, but also um, contributions to global science through its people, not just academic professional scientists but also people like um, Bedouin rangers who have important knowledge of uh, traditional knowledge of Arabian environments Um, and finally um, uh, also um, uh, the non uh, the non-human inhabitants of the uh, of the Gulf states like the animals themselves um, who who survived with Developed abilities to survive in these extreme environments are, um, were, inspiring actors are both for global science.
0: Now, you also in this chapter, and this will be kind of the last um, question I ask you before we move to our conclusion. You also talk about prospects for future transnationalism, as I mentioned just um, a little Mm -hmm. while ago. Now, as a scholar of or someone who's interested in um, the history of science in China, um, I would love for you to talk a little bit about the example of um, China that you mentioned here. You talk about potential future transnational engagements with China, especially in the field of genomics. Um, So can you speak a little bit to that as a way of kind of bringing us to a conclusion?
1: Uh, Hi. So much of the book um, focuses on connections between the West and the Middle East. Um, But perhaps just as important have been South South connections um, with um, people from other third world countries working in the Gulf states or people from the Gulf states going um, to other third world countries. Um, in order to do research on similar environments, for instance, similarly arid environments of Morocco or Central Asia. And my argument is that um, while the connections with Western countries will probably be, be important, as um, connections with East Asia, Asia will certainly become more um, important in the future. Um, we already have seen um, uh, the appointment of a uh, former president of the National University of Singapore, to a major uh, Saudi university, the King Abdullah University of Science and uh, Technology. And there's increasing recognition in the Gulf states of, uh, uh, of the scientific achievements of, of modern China, especially in the fields of, of uh, genomics. Uh, so rather than collaborating with uh, Western institutions, Uh, The King Abdulaziz, City for Science and Technology, uh, has collaborated with the Beijing um, Genomics Institute, uh, BGI, for instance, on sequencing um, uh, the genome genome of the camel, an animal of high agricultural as well as symbolic animal um, in the Gulf states.
0: Such a fascinating case. <laughs> I'd love to read like much more about that as well. Um, so, thank you so much for making time to talk with us today. Now, we've talked about a lot, but there's of course a ton of material in the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about. Is there anything specifically that you'd like to mention for listeners and perhaps, again, especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to become readers?
1: Um, no. Um, apart from that, I would like to just to express thanks to the many, many people and organizations uh, in the Gulf states and elsewhere uh, who have supported me in undertaking
0: this research. Great. And now that the research is complete and the book is out, and congratulations on the book. What's next for you? What are you currently working on and, and inspired by?
1: Um, I, uh, I'm continuing to work on the history of science and um, also on the history of science in the Middle East. Um, and my new project has the working title The Arab World's um, Final Frontier, um, Transnational Space Science. Um, So um, Mm -hmm. from the Gulf States, I'm now looking at um, the Arab world as a whole, and from biology, I'm moving to the field of astronomy and space science. And again, I would like to tell a more positive story um, of... uh, about the modern Middle East, a story that um, is perhaps a little distant from many accounts of violence, revolution, terrorism, Islamism, um, and so on. and uh, A story that focuses on the contributions of scientists from the Arab world and in the Arab world uh, to, for instance, the Apollo space program um, uh, uh, where Egyptian scientists um, uh, that played a major role in mapping the moon and in um, selecting the Apollo uh, landing set, um, sites, complicating um, the ideas of, for instance, the Apollo program as an essentially American space program. Um, there have also been um, uh, uh, important modern observ- observatories in the um, in the Arab world, in places like Egypt, Lebanon. Um, and Algeria since the 19th century. So the argument that I would like to make in this book is that um, the Arab world was not just a pre-modern contributor um, to global astronomical knowledge, um, but has been, has been active in transnational astronomy um, yeah, all the way to the
0: present. Well, best of luck with that project, which also sounds completely fascinating. Um, And I'll hope to read about that as well when it's done. Um, So thank you so much, Matthias, um, for making time and for giving us an opportunity to talk about such a fascinating book. It's really been a pleasure.
1: Thank you so much. And thank you very much for everything that you're doing um, through these podcasts for um, history of science, um, for um, uh, East Asian studies.
0: Thank you.